Today's Bible reading is from Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that every portion of Scripture comes from you. Lord, even parts that reveal uh, uncomfortable, difficult, nasty bits of history, like the one we've just read. And please, Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to see what it reveals about your Son, Jesus, and the place that he should have in our lives. For your sake we pray. Amen. The way our culture does Christmas... Uh, it, it, it depends how you feel as to whether you can enjoy it or not. Uh, a little silly personal illustration of that. I've been to Winter Wonderland over in Hyde Park a number of times. Uh, most of the times, I've, I've quite enjoyed it. The very first time I went was last year. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I was actually coming down with a sick bug as I walked around. <laughs> and it was feeling really queasy and assumed that the reason I was feeling queasy was the sights and the sounds and the smells of Winter Wonderland. And I came away thinking, what a horrible thing that is. And then I realized afterwards. Um, I hope that you've had a fantastic Christmas so far. But some people have had a terrible Christmas. Uh, if you flicked on the news on Christmas Day, you'll have seen the stories of the people afflicted by the weather, hundreds of homes flooded, people evacuated, waiting to go back and see the wreckage of their homes. Thirty people in Dorset apparently had to be rescued by uh, the firemen from inside their cars where they'd been trapped by the floods. What a way to spend Christmas Day. Tens of thousands had no electricity. Some still haven't had that restored. But all of that in the UK, dwarfed by the ice storms in Canada and the US. Half a million people without power. Now, I hope that some of those poor afflicted people are storing up memories of courage and camaraderie, uh, that they'll be able to tell their children and grandchildren in times of adversity. 
But some will remember this Christmas with terrible sadness. 27 people died. That's the last figure I saw uh, in those ice storms. Uh, Closer to home for some in the congregation here, it's been a a terrible, tragic Christmas. Uh, One person was very sick in hospital during Christmas week. Two people have lost their fathers in recent weeks. Matt, many of you know, our our senior minister, Matt Fuller, uh, and his family are desperately sad after uh, a little girl that they've fostered this year has been taken away and placed elsewhere for adoption. And many others, maybe some of you here this morning, sadness or sickness or depression or something of your own has ruined Christmas in various ways. Christmas can be hard to cope with in the midst of suffering. It can feel very jarring. The sort of constant sound of happy celebration and partying and ho, ho, ho can feel a bit discordant when people are going through terrible times. And even the true Christmas story of the coming of Jesus into the world can often be presented a bit like a fairy tale. Too good to be true, irrelevant to a suffering world, rose-tinted, surrounded by tinsel. And we can feel as if it exists in some sort of separate, fairy tale fantasy world where nobody is sad and everybody lives happily forever after. Except they don't. (laughs) Not even in the real Christmas story. What do you make of the passage that we just had read? You've got Mary and Joseph and Jesus having to flee the country on the run from a, a murderous tyrant. You've got the horrific account, and it really is horrific, and we'll come back to that, of the massacre of baby boys in Bethlehem. And then even after they come back to Israel, there's still fear. Herod is gone, but his son Archelaus rules in Judea, making it too dangerous a place for Jesus' family to settle. You don't get that bit in nativity plays. I was at my son's nursery nativity play a couple of weeks ago. They didn't touch on this. You don't open an advent calendar and see this illustrated. Most carol service readings stop short, well short, of this bit. Uh, At most you get to the visit of the Magi ending at uh, verse 12. Uh, Or perhaps the really brave in carol services go up to the end of verse 15. But it still leaves you with a nice satisfying end. Jesus has escaped, King Herod is thwarted, prophecy is fulfilled, God is in charge and all is right with the world. Wonderful. So I thought this morning, the Sunday after Christmas, if you don't mind, lower your mood somewhat, uh, that we'd read on. Not all of these uh, events are unknown. People are familiar with what happens in this passage, but we don't often think about it. Why did these things happen? Put it this way. If Jesus is God, the creator of this world, stepping into his world in human flesh to be the king of kings, to rule over his creation, then why on earth is he immediately on the run from a, a puny human king, by contrast? Couldn't God just swipe Herod aside like an insect? Why didn't he? What we're going to see is something very profound. God had a plan which was perfectly carried out. And that plan was for Jesus to enter the world and suffer. This is only the beginning, of course. Uh, It's only the first attempt on Jesus' life. And there will be many. Read on in Matthew or the other Gospels and the persecution quickly returns after this point and becomes more and more intense until the day Jesus dies on the cross. This is just a foretaste of all of that. So uh, have a look at the passage in front of you. The the first thing to notice is the way it's written. Uh, Three parts to the narrative. 
each of which ends with the fulfilling of a prophecy. So verse 13 to 15, there's the escape to Egypt with the prophecy fulfilled in verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. Then 16 to 18, there's Herod's massacre of the baby boys in Bethlehem with the prophecy of Jeremiah fulfilled in 17 and 18, Rachel weeping for her children. And then the third section, 29 to 23, uh, sorry, 19 to 23, there's the return to Israel with those prophecies fulfilled in verse 23. He will be called a Nazarene. So three events and three prophecies explaining those events. And it's really typical of Matthew to root everything that he's recording here in the Old Testament. If you flick back a page to chapter 1, you can see how he begins with the genealogy of Jesus, showing how Jesus is in the family line of Abraham and David. And then 118 onwards, uh, the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary is announced. And why is the birth announced to a virgin? Well, 1 verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In chapter 2, the Magi come, bringing their gifts, and Herod's advisors tell them where the promised king is to be born, uh, Bethlehem. And why is that? Well, chapter 2, verse 5, well, this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Matthew wants us to know that everything is happening according to God's plan. The life of Jesus, starting with his birth, takes place precisely where and when and how God intends. In one sense, the events of the Gospels are not new revelation. It was all there in the Old Testament, just rather hard to put together before Jesus had come. So let's come back to our verses uh, 13 to 23. And for a moment... Let me just ask this question. What would this passage look like without those prophecies? Take away verse 15 and 17 and 18 and 23 so that there's no explanation of what's going on and what's left. It's just, as Lemony Snicket would say, a series of unfortunate events. More than unfortunate, they are nasty, horrific Evil events full of suffering for everyone involved. It looks as if Mary and Joseph and Jesus are helpless at the mercy of murderous King Herod. So I want us to look at the events without the prophecies just for a moment. Because some people have said that that none of these things are plausible even. Skeptics have cast doubt on all of the elements of this account. They've doubted that Joseph and Mary would have gone to Egypt. They've doubted that Herod really ordered the death of these children in Bethlehem. They've doubted that Matthew has it right about the relocation to Nazareth. So I want to spend just a a moment or two in, in each of them before we put the prophecies back in and say, well, what do we make of this historically? Is it make believe? Well, verse 13 to 15, the flight to Egypt. For some reason, this is... Uh, captured the imagination of countless artists through the years. I read that there are at least 50 famous paintings by the great masters of the flight to Egypt. And most of them managed to make it look sort of exotic and otherworldly and exciting, uh, which all adds to the fairy tale feel. Let me suggest that we picture it a little differently to that. How about Syria? How about those pictures we've seen in the news this year? of families on the run, fleeing murderous regimes. 
How about those pictures of people wearing out their shoes or walking barefoot down dusty tracks, desperate to get away from death, wondering where they will find shelter, wondering where they will find the next meal? That's how we should imagine this. Remember the, the pictures of toddlers and babies amongst those families fleeing from Syria. Really, this story is nothing unusual. Wherever there is a murderous tyrant, there are families trying to escape. People trying to flee who go to the border wherever they can and become asylum seekers. There's nothing implausible about this. It happens all the time. Verse 14, it was a desperate middle-of-the-night escape. Maybe just in time, responding to the, the tip-off from the angel. Yes, given by an angel. Indication there's more going on. We'll come back to that. But apart from the angel, this is just simply a horrible experience of suffering shared by millions of people. There's nothing unusual about people fleeing from tyranny. And Egypt, actually far from being an unlikely destination, was the nearest border. It was the quickest place to get to out of Herod's jurisdiction. I I read it was 75 miles or so. would have taken a few days, maybe a week, to get there. It was possibly also the safest place to go. We know there were Jewish communities in there at the time. Uh, Joseph and Mary might have had contacts, relatives there. Very plausible. What about the next section? 16 to 18, the massacre of these baby boys in Bethlehem. It is a horrible scene to read, isn't it? Especially for those of us who are parents. I, I remember reading this passage when our son, Joel, was just a little bit less than two years old. Boy, it hit. I find it very difficult to dwell on such things. And again, some have doubted, did this happen? Would Herod have done this? Is this just somebody inventing stories that make Herod look bad? Well, in a sense, I'm sorry to report that this fits perfectly with everything that we know about Herod. I don't know if you know this, Herod happens to be one of the people from ancient history that we know most about. Uh, many writers, such as the, the Roman Jewish historian Josephus, give us a, a hugely detailed account of this man, Herod the Great, as he became known, because there were lots of other Herods in his family, some of whom ruled in various places. He was Herod the Great. We know he lived from 73 BC to, uh, to 4 BC. For the last 35 years of his life, he was king of the Jews, but sort of imposed as king of the Jews by the Romans, uh, even though he himself was not ethnically Jewish. And there's two things to remember about the reign of Herod. If you want to remember two things about Herod, here they are. On the one hand, he built some amazing things. On the other hand, he was a paranoid murdering maniac. Those are your two top facts about King Herod. And there's plenty of evidence for both of those things. You can go to Israel today. Um, I spent uh, six months working in Israel before going to university. Uh, And you can see some of the things that Herod built. I think we can see some on the screen. There's, uh, if you go to the beach at Caesarea, that's there on the beach. This huge aqueduct. Uh, it's absolutely vast. The next picture shows you just how enormous it is. It just goes on and on and on and on. It would have carried water. That was Herod's. Herod built that. Uh, then in Jerusalem, there's the famous uh, Wailing Wall, or Western Wall, as it's sometimes called. Herod turned the, the existing small temple into an enormous complex. Maybe you remember the disciples in Mark's Gospel commenting to Jesus as they walked past it. 
Lord, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Well, this is the, the last surviving part. And you can see, compared to the scale of the people, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. You get a sense of the scale of his ambition. And then there's a, a series of enormous desert forts that he built. Here's Masada, absolutely enormous, on a hill in the desert. There's another one named Herodium. Herodium, good name, Herod. Um, in some sort of fit of humility, he named it that. And uh, his tomb was, was rediscovered there recently. Now, these huge desert forts show not just the scale of Herod's ambition, but perhaps also the scale of his paranoia. He didn't really need those. His reign was mostly pretty secure under the Romans, who were ready to defend him. As I said, the second thing to remember about Herod is that he was a paranoid, murdering maniac. Let me give you some examples. After becoming king, he was worried that his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, might be more popular than he was and might become a threat, so he invited him to a party and had him drowned. A few years later, he convinced himself that his wife, Mariam, was being unfaithful and plotting against him, which doesn't seem to be true, according to the histories that have come down to us. He had her executed, followed by her mother, Alexandria. A year later, he executed another brother-in-law, Costabar, for conspiracy. Next, his own sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. And then another son, Antipater. And as Herod lay dying, we're told that he attempted one last desperate act of murderous self-protection. He knew he was going to die, so he ordered his officials to round up the leading men of lots of the cities of Israel. He gathered them to Jericho, put them in the Hippodrome in Jericho, and he sent orders that when he, Herod, died, they were to be slaughtered. Why would he do such a thing? Because he was worried that when he died, people would celebrate, and he wanted people to mourn. Isn't that extraordinary? It wasn't carried out. Do you get the picture, though? Herod was some sort of ancient Kim Jong-un, but multiplied many times. This man was more than capable of the atrocity in Bethlehem. So much murder went on under his reign that this is just small print in a sense. Bethlehem was a small village. Scholars reckon 10, 20 babies would have been under two at that time. Infant mortality would have been high. None of that lessens the horror, the despicable nature of this act. But it shows why we're unlikely to hear about it elsewhere. It just wouldn't have been noticed by other sources. So very, very plausible. And then lastly, we have the return to Israel in 19 to 23. Again, this fully fits the known historical picture. Herod's kingdom was divided up after his death. His son Archelaus was uh, installed as ruler in Judea. It made sense if Jesus truly had been born king of the Jews for Mary and Joseph to go and try and settle in Jerusalem or, or somewhere nearby. And it looks as if they, they were going to try that. But it felt too risky while Herod's son was there on the throne. And so they returned to Nazareth, which Luke's Gospel tells us was their hometown, originally anyway. Very plausible, but without the prophecies, what does it look like? Helpless, pointless suffering. Herod calling all the shots. Jesus being shoved around by the whims of a tyrant. 
But at least, even if that's all we can see in this passage, it sounds like our world. At least it sounds like that. The world of Syria and South Sudan and North Korea. Our world where people do lose fathers and children and do suffer so that the Christmas of tinsel and baubles can seem jarring and inappropriate. At least we can say that Jesus came to the real world and faced real suffering right from the start. That helps for the suffering person wondering how Christmas can be relevant. But now, put the prophecies back in. Put back in verse 15 and 17 and 23. How does that change things? Suddenly, all of this is different. The whole complexion of it is changed. Let me draw out some of these uh, the lessons this passage teaches us about the suffering of Jesus when the events and the prophecies are, are put back together. Three things that we see. Feel free to scribble them if you've got a handout with you. A sovereign God, a new Israel, and a suffering saviour. A sovereign God, a new Israel, and a suffering saviour. First, a sovereign God. As we've said, all of this is according to plan. It's not just the the happy details of the Christmas story that are according to God's plan. Jesus' family tree, or his virgin birth, or his place of birth, and so on, it's not just those things. It's the horrible details as well. The horrible details are part of God's plan too. God is superintending even this part of Jesus' life. Let me just mention three ways that you see that in the passage. You see the angels. You see repeated wording in the passage and you see prophecies. Those three things. The angels, of course, show that God is sovereign. Through them, he reveals the situation to Joseph and leads them to Egypt and guides them back again. The angels are a very clear indication that God is sovereign. The repeated wording. I don't know if you noticed this as we read it, but look again at verse 13. An angel appears to Joseph and says, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and left for Egypt. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now compare what I've just read to verse 19. An angel appears to Joseph and says, verse 20, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Verse 21, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the, the prophets. The wording's exactly the same, apart from the change of location and the change of reason in each part. It's deliberate. It gives us a sense of the careful planning and the ordering and the structure that is going on here. Herod is not calling the shots. God is. And most of all, you see it in the prophecies. This was all intended from long ago. It's not that God is just responding to events in the best way that he can and therefore is likely to be in better control than Herod. God planned all of this from ages past. Now look, this is very comforting for suffering people around Christmas time. Christmas reveals a sovereign God. We don't have any prophecies about our own suffering. There's no instant interpretation in the way that there was with Jesus. But we do have a God who plans who overrules history, who uses suffering, even terrible, terrible suffering, for his good purposes. Matt Fuller said uh, a couple of weeks ago to some of us, would the Fuller family prefer to erase 2013 and start again? 
Emotionally, yes, of course, that's how they feel. Nobody would wish on anybody the year that they've had. And yet, Matt said that knowing that there is a sovereign God means that he can't just write off a year like the one they've had. God is doing things. Yes, painful things, but important things. And through the pain, we can begin to explore the kinds of things that he might be doing, bringing suffering, uh, bringing good from the suffering. Christmas reveals a sovereign God. So we see a sovereign God. Secondly, we see a new Israel. Matthew is saying through these prophecies, Jesus is a new Israel. Now, that needs some explaining. You might think, Jesus is a new Israel. What does that mean? So what? How irrelevant is that? Bear with me. Um, When you see this, uh, it's very exciting. These prophecies at first glance are really odd. I don't know if you've noticed that. When you go back and you look at the original context, they're not predictions at all. Uh, They are descriptions of things that happened in Israel's history. They don't seem to need any fulfillment. It's not as if uh, Hosea said, uh, one day uh, somebody will come and then God will say, out of Egypt I'll call my son. Hosea was talking about a past experience of Israel being rescued from Egypt. That's what verse 15 is, is citing. It was Hosea's way of describing what God had done in saving Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel was the son, not Jesus, when Hosea was writing. And in verse 18, uh, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. That comes from a later part in Israel's history. Uh, the exile, where mothers saw their sons killed or taken into exile in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah imagines Rachel, who was uh, an ancient mother of the tribes of Israel around Bethlehem, crying from her grave about what was going on, because her tomb was just outside Bethlehem in a place called Ramah, the same place where the Babylonians had a, a prisoner of war camp, where exiles were waiting to be taken away. Again, it just seems like a historical description of events in Israel's history, not a prediction. So if these were not explicit predictions, what is Matthew doing here? He is saying that Jesus is the new Israel. Think of the parallels. Israelites were in Egypt. They had to flee to Egypt, and then they were under the protection of a man called Joseph. Interesting persecuted by a king, Pharaoh, who tried to kill them by massacring all the baby boys. Interesting. Then they were rescued from Egypt, brought out of Egypt by divine intervention. And then Matthew's next parallel with the exile, the suffering and death faced by many people uh, as just a remnant of the nation of Israel survived. And yet that remnant was going to be the good news of God's salvation. Same with Jesus, rescued from this terrible destruction to be the one who was going to save. And you know what? Once Matthew gets started on this idea, he just keeps going and going. Chapter 4, we see the temptations in the wilderness. Just as Israel were tempted for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Just as Moses spoke God's words to Israel gathered on a mountain, Jesus speaks God's words to Israel gathered on a mountain. And so it goes on and on and on. Jesus is... The new Israel is striking. Once you start seeing it, you see it all over the place. But so what? So what? What difference does it make to you and me in our lives if Jesus is the new Israel? Why does that make any difference? 
it's not just that he's retracing their steps. What he's doing is doing perfectly everything that they failed to do. So we see Jesus in the Gospels perfectly obeying where Israel completely failed to obey. We see God saying of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, where Israel had so often rejected God as their father. We see that Jesus always perfectly worshipped his father when Israel had so often walked away from him. So Jesus fully kept God's requirements for us where Israel failed. They needed somebody to come as a perfect representative of what they should have been. We fail too. We need somebody to come as a perfect representative of what we should be. Jesus isn't only the new Israel. He's the new humanity. He's the new you. He's the new me. He, he's done what we should have done. He's lived the life that you and I should have lived. He's experienced all of the suffering that you and I can experience as human beings. And yet, he was perfect. Do you see how this fills out what it means for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us? He's with us in our failings. He's with us in our sufferings. And he's there for us instead of us in our failings, achieving on our behalf what we could never achieve ourselves before God. Look, suddenly Christmas is very, very, very good news for the suffering and struggling and failing person. Jesus is the new Israel, the new humanity, the new you. And finally, he's a suffering saviour. The last of these prophecies, verse 23. Uh, people are often embarrassed by this one. Uh, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. It's worth you knowing this. Uh, people who are writing against Christianity love this verse because there's a very simple argument they love to draw out. They say, okay, Christians, show me the verse in the Old Testament where it says he shall be called a Nazarene. And we go, there isn't one. There isn't one. Oops. And Christians have sort of scrabbled a bit uh, and tried to find an answer. Is it a bit like uh, various people in the Old Testament were called Nazarites, which was to do with a special vow that people took? doesn't sound very convincing. Um, is it that Nazar the word Nazareth sounds a bit like branch and Jesus was the promised branch? Uh, I don't know. They sound a bit like unconvincing word plays that are not going to convince anybody. Two things to notice about this. Very important. Uh, first is, Looking at it, verse 23, this time Matthew doesn't say the words of a prophet are being fulfilled. He says, so is fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. So we're not looking for a quote necessarily, but a theme of the prophets. Second thing to know is that Nazareth, we don't get this at all, but Nazareth was a despised place. When you read the Gospels, you get a sense of just how despised it was. Uh, Galilee, the region that it was in, was often called Galilee of the Gentiles, which was a, a very demeaning thing to say by an Israelite. Uh, Galilee was away from Jerusalem, far away from the heart of Israel, the place where people were kind of still in exile, where there was lots of religious compromise. Uh, the Pharisees in John 7 say, look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. You can hear the despising of Galilee. 
in their words. And then Nazareth, within Galilee, was the despised place of Galilee. Uh, within Galilee. So uh, one of Jesus' first disciples, Nathaniel, in John 1.46, hears that Jesus is from Nazareth and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth indicates despised, rejected, the place of outcasts. You can imagine various authors have had fun with this and tried to suggest places in our society that have the same kind of ring to it. Milton Keynes, Staines. It's rebranded itself Staines on Thames, understandably. One person I, I, I read who was a London author said Dagenham. Now, we need to not say that because Dagenham has some of our mission partners in it from uh, Christchurch Mayfair. But Nazareth indicated despised, rejected. This is the theme of the prophets that Matthew is pointing to. A despised and rejected one will come. And he will be the Messiah. Jesus came to be the suffering servant, the suffering saviour. And he didn't flinch from suffering throughout his life. Uh, He went deliberately to the cross. He made sure that he would be killed eventually. Died for uh, the sin of his people. This suffering saviour came to suffer and die so that people would not have to suffer and die for their own sins. Jesus died for the sins of you and me if we trust in him. This is fantastic news. Absolutely amazing news for people in in this world, the real world of suffering and sin and difficulty. Christmas means that God is sovereign. Christmas means that Jesus has come to be the new Israel, the new you on your behalf. And it means that he's come to be the suffering saviour, the one who came to die in your place, my place, for our sins. Fantastic news. What looks like doom and gloom in God's hands, explained by his prophecies, is absolutely wonderful. Whatever you've had this last couple of weeks, you might have had the worst Christmas ever. This is the best news ever. Before I pray, uh, we're going to hopefully watch a little video if it works. A little video that shows us a bit about what it means for Jesus to fulfill all these prophecies, to be the new Israel, to be all the things that the Old Testament pointed forward to. See if we can see that. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, 
who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Bible is about Jesus. Thank you that he is the true Israel, the new and better humanity, the new and better me. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us this Christmas time, whatever year we've had, whether it's been a wonderful year, whether it's been marked by difficulties, sufferings, sadness of many kinds. Help us to see just how wonderful the news of Christmas is to a world often afflicted by pain and suffering. Help us to see that you are sovereign. Help us to see that Jesus has come to accomplish all that we couldn't accomplish, to live our lives, to experience all the sufferings that we could, and yet be perfect. And then to suffer as our saviour, to die on our behalf. What wonderful news Christmas is. Help us to see it. And help us to begin this coming year, may 2014 be a year where we see Jesus clearly for who he truly is, where we spend time in scripture and see him walking off those pages in each and every moment of your great plans. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.